Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Episode 4. Culpability People change for the worse in crowds, I've found. I don't know if you've noticed it. They simply lose something of themselves. Their initiative, their decision-making skills, their ability to hear and see beyond the reactions of the others around them. 
More than once in a skew, I have tried to politely move through a packed subway carriage to reach the doors for my stop, only to be faced with a sea of spines. Every other commuter turning their backs to me, their faces hidden from me, still and silent, refusing to acknowledge my existence, no matter how loud I scream. And then there's that peculiar phenomenon on a rainy day, where a dozen or more suited men and women will gather around a single seated vagrant at a street corner, and in quiet unison raise their umbrellas and bring them down with a hard wet thwack again and again and again until the blood runs. I suppose what I'm trying to say is this. I do not believe people to be cattle. But I believe this city has the power to make us so. It knows how adaptable we are, how conducive to repetition more than we ever could. There's a busy crossroads at the bottom of the Chaplain's Hill, just a few minutes from the office of the newspaper where I work. Every morning, I wait to cross, as the traffic comes from north to south, from west to east, and then stops entirely, and I step out into the road. And I am so very frightened that one day I will have drifted through repetition and exhaustion, just close enough to sleep, so that when the lights change unexpectedly, from west to east and then north to south, I am not watching for the danger, but stepping automatically out into the road, into the path of a looming truck or hooting, mocking scooter, torn to pieces in a savage instant. For now, at least, I hope I am just awake enough. My name is David Ward. I am in Askew. On Monday morning, my editor comes up to see me on the 14th floor of the Askew Tribunal and asks me to visit a murderer. The man in question has just this week been convicted for the butchery of his wife and two daughters in the most upsetting manner you could possibly imagine. Now every hack and ghostwriter in the city is putting out feelers to see if he's keen to find a media partner, but the tribunal alone has been able to secure an interview. The killer, according to his lawyers, had an especially rough and traumatic childhood. My editor feels that this would be the most appropriate angle to consider. There's something there, he insists, about cycles of hurt and inheritance of violence, It did go down well. It certainly sounds like a change of pace. But it's pouring with rain outside, I have a full packet of chocolate biscuits, and I've positioned myself close to the radiator. Sounds like a job for the crime desk, I tell him. My editor shakes his head. They're not here today, he tells me, and I don't think they'll be coming in tomorrow. There's something going around. He makes a clawing motion with his hands and gives me a look as if I'm supposed to know what that means. I tell him I'll head out immediately. He adds, as I'm leaving, that it would be quite the coup if we could find out where the rest of the remains have been stashed. On the 19th floor of the Coldfriars Hospital, 
in a private room watched by two uniformed guards and, quite securely, shackled to the rails of the bed by all four limbs, lies the man I'm looking for. If you can call him a man any longer. I busy myself in taking a seat, quite unable to look him in the eye, and with an inappropriate degree of false chumminess introduce myself and the publication I'm approaching him on behalf of. The man in the bed says, What's your angle? I tell him that my only angle is his angle, that I have been a supporter of his since the beginning of the trial, and I strongly intend to give him all of the support he needs to explain his side of the story, to share the humanity behind the crime. He gives a sort of shaky laugh, settles back in the bed, and tells me that humanity has nothing whatsoever to do with it. Then we can talk about that, I insist over-eagerly. This can be your manifesto, an appendix to the central body of your work. The man in the bed tells me he'd like a soda. Well, I think, there's nothing wrong with that. And I leave him alone for a while, losing myself in the echoing and empty corridors in search of a vending machine. When I return, I make to hand the can to him, and he only chuckles roughly and lifts his arms, waving in surrender. His hands barely make it halfway to what I suppose I should describe as his face. You'll have to help me with that, he says. Well, I don't like the idea, but cooperation is the cornerstone of society, and so I inch across to stand over him, open up the soda can with a carbonated hiss, and tilt it towards the black slit of his mouth. I can hear it gurgling in the back of his throat as he drinks and drinks and drains. His eyes meet mine, and he nods to show he's done. I lower the can, and his fingers close around my wrist. His grip is tight. His skin is so cold it bites. And then, before I even have a chance to cry out, he releases me and drops his hand, swiftly, almost bashfully, as if he just wanted to prove to himself, or to me, that he could do it. Well, the man in the bed asks me, what did you want me to say? My dictaphone lies on the table between us. The man in the bed watches me. He seems content to let me flail about in trying to initiate the beginnings of an interview. I ask him about his wife. He stares at me. I ask him about his two beautiful daughters, and instantly I wonder if that's a mistake calling them beautiful given what he's done to them. But he stares at me. I ask him about his childhood, and his eye twitches once. I offer up a fragment from my own childhood, a trick I remember from old detective shows on TV. Something about my mother and a song she used to sing to herself as she ran the bath for me in the evenings. The welcoming, gushing roar of the taps drifting through the corridors. The hot towel waiting for me when I stepped back out of the water. Comfort and safety. I tell him that even as a grown man, when I feel truly afraid, truly alone, 
as if I no longer have friends in this world or the next. I think back to that noise, that warmth, that feeling. The man in the bed is silent and very still. Then he begins to speak. He tells me about the blue front door of his childhood flat. Faded blue, with two locks and a chain, and a spiral of frosted glass in four separate panes. Before his mother left, when he was eight years old, the man in the bed remembers a single vivid night. A night when he saw the glass blur and heard the rough, a rhythmical knock that meant his father had been drinking. And he was already at the door, his hand closing over the chain, pulling it free to let his father inside, when he heard the frantic pounding of his mother's feet on the stairs. And he turned and looked up to see her, dressed in a coat, with her packed suitcase in one hand, and his own smaller holiday bag in another, and her eyes were full of desperation as she whispered, just a second too late, don't let him in. He blames himself. If he'd waited just a little longer, maybe kept his hand on the chain, so that his father couldn't barge through into the hallway, staring first in disbelief and then a rising fury at the sight of his mother, packed and ready to leave. If he'd only kept that door closed a moment longer, she might have been able to take him with her. At first, the man in the bed insists that he doesn't want to dwell on what came next, in the years when he was living alone with his father. But it's not that easy, and he isn't that good at hiding his pain. I listen to an ensuing catalogue of humiliations and hurt. A father who came home through the front door to shriek at him, strike him with the back of his hand, scorn and sneer at him, on the nights when the man had been drinking or suffered at work, or struck out with a girl. Beer cans hurled at the wall, kicks aimed at the boy's face, insults that he was forced to repeat over and over, agreeing with them, accepting their diagnosis. My editor will be delighted. The hardest thing to live with during those years, he tells me, was hope. A single, desperate hope that one day his mother would come back and take him with her. A fraying hope, eaten away at every evening when the blurred shape of his father appeared at the front door. Renewed, in his quietest, sobbing moments alone in his bedroom, when there was quite simply nothing else to hold on to. One day she will come. One day there will be a knock at that door, and she'll be standing there, just as she was when she left. And how quickly his hope turned to faith, a searching and exploratory faith in any god that might deliver up to him his wish, his desire, his lifeline. Long nights of prayer beside his bed, to the powers of the churches and the deities of the lower town. Please let her come. 
Let her come and take me away from this. He was twelve years old when his prayer was finally heard. A cold, bright, clear morning in Askew. He remembers coming downstairs ready to make breakfast and sit alone with his comic books as usual. To witness the unfamiliar and perplexing sight of his father, clattering shamefacedly about with the dishes in the sink, saying to him in a voice that was all at once nervous and sulky, Pack your things. Your mother's coming to pick you up. He simply stood there, blank and staring, refusing to process the words, until his father turned around and snapped more loudly, Didn't you hear me? She's coming to get you and she'll be here soon. Go and pack. And then all at once he was running up to his bedroom, pulling his bag out from under the bed and stuffing objects into it as he found them. A few token clothes, a toothbrush from the bathroom, some drawings he'd made last year which he'd always wanted to show her. A book she'd given him when he was six. The bag wasn't even full, not even half full, when he zipped it up, because his mother was coming to get him and he didn't need anything else. And all at once the smile broke out of him, like a sunrise. He slung the bag over his shoulder and ran to take up a position halfway down the stairs, facing the blue front door and the archway of frosted glass panes, paying no attention whatsoever to his father, who was anxiously tidying away the beer cans and adjusting the carpets and trying to give the false sense of a home that was happy and clean and safe. He waited and waited, willing the glass to change, to produce the sudden blur of a shape standing behind it, the sign that his mother had finally arrived. And it was beginning to occur to him that perhaps this was a new prank, a game invented by his father to torment him by pretending that his mother was coming to pick him up and the smile was just beginning to droop from his face when suddenly darkness moved beyond the frosted glass and a knock came at the door. Two knocks. Tap, tap. It was an odd sound, unlike any he'd heard the wood make before. Hollow and dull and empty. He got to his feet, hardly daring to step up to the door and see her for himself, and the knock came again. Tap, tap. I'll get it, he cried aloud, because this was his moment, and he didn't want to share it with his father. I'll get it, I'll get it, don't worry. And he went to the door and pulled aside the chain and turned the handle to open it wide and stood there, staring up at the thing that was not his mother. Its face was wide and white and clownish as if drawn in chalk. Its eyes were black and round and horribly empty even as they stared down at him and its mouth was set in a grin that never moved. Like a painting, he tells me, like a sketch upon the surface of the air, a mocking caricature of a human skull. It was wearing his mother's dress, 
the same dress she wore the night when she left, and in its long-fingered hand it held his mother's face like a purse, empty and eyeless and drooping, a mask of skin. Its face seemed to fill the sky. He felt his father come up behind him, placing a restraining hand on his shoulder, and say aloud calmly, You're late. You said 10.30, and it's closer to 11. The thing that was not his mother did not move. Its expression did not change. It did not stop staring down at him. And yet his father continued, as if to an inaudible reply, Well, he'll be glad to see the back of me, I'm sure, and I'll have a lot less trouble on my hands as well. The thing that was not his mother did not move. It simply waited for him. He felt his father's palm on his back, pushing him forward, making him stagger. Go on then, his father said. Don't keep your mother waiting. And as he looked up into that monstrous, chalky, grinning face, he began to quiver and shake and cry, turning back, burying himself into his father's stomach, sobbing. Don't let her take me. Don't let her take me. His father, surprised, tried to prise him loose, saying in a voice that was unexpectedly soft and shocked, Don't be ridiculous, boy. She's going to look after you now. What are you crying for? And he shook his head and cried and shivered, clinging to his father's reassuring sweaty shirt, refusing to look back at the thing that was not his mother, begging him not to make him go with it, until finally his father said, apologetically, Well, if he really doesn't want to go, I suppose we can't force him. Silence. And the darkness when he looked up was no longer visible in the frosted glass. And he was alone with his father again. The man in the bed stares at me. What do you make of that? he asks. Do you think I was dreaming? Was it really my mother standing there and I was just deluded? Or was it something else? I have lived in a skew for too long to be a sceptic. But I am also very aware that I have drifted into the periphery of something that makes the hairs on the back of my neck prickle. And in such circumstances... It's always better not to draw attention to yourself. I tell him gently that it's probably my fault for introducing the topic of his childhood, but it seems as if we've strayed away from the issue of the murders. He laughs like a lunatic. That's exactly it, he tells me. This is the only way he has of explaining it. Because it was only decades later with his father safely put to rest on Cemetery Hill, when he was living out in the grey suburbs with a wife who loved him and two daughters who he'd do anything for, caught in the trap of middle-aged comfort, that he began to wonder once again. What would have happened if he'd gone with her? And he begins to ache with regret and shame that he did not have the courage to reach out and take the hand of the thing that was not his mother and go with her to whatever great journey was being offered to him.
his eyes fall. His fingers clench into fists. That was my next mistake, he tells me. I have made so many dreadful mistakes. He remembers working late, one night alone in his office, quietly dreading the journey home to his kind and caring family, the inevitable conclusion of a life that had begun with horror and achieved only the banal success of making itself ordinary. When the frosted glass windows looking out onto the divisional floor shifted into blackness, and he heard someone knocking at the door. Two taps. Tap. Tap. He stayed at his desk, quite frozen for some time, wondering if he'd just misheard the creaking of the floors or the pattering of the radiators, if the darkness had not shifted behind the frosted glass, but had been there all along, willing up the rational capacity to dismiss what he had just seen and heard and return to his computer screen. When the knock came again, tap, tap, he got to his feet, stood at the door, listening, unable to say the words, go away, or come in. Finally, knowing in his heart that he was trapped and alone, and had nowhere to turn except for the inescapable reality of the door and whatever was standing behind it, his fingers closed on the handle. He opened the door. The floor was empty. Nothing was standing there. And he began to laugh, with a kind of scornful relief at himself for falling into a blind panic so quickly. And yet he left the door ajar as he went back to his desk to pack away his things for the long drive home, just so he could see if there was anything coming. He kept checking in his own rearview mirror all of the way home, spooked and twitchy, trying to fix his mind on the reassuring certainty of his family, waiting for him at home, the simple decency of a cooked meal, and affection and laughter. It was as he pulled into his driveway that he stopped thinking about anything at all, because right away he could see that his front door was wide open, and the light within was shining brightly over an empty hallway. He stepped out of the car, walked the few feet to the mat which read, Welcome, stepped into his house, calling his wife's name as he entered the deserted kitchen, calling his daughter's names as he walked into the living room and saw the open patio door leading out into their little treasured garden. Stopped calling. Saw the clothesline, bedsheets and socks hanging in the darkness, billowing like phantoms in the wind. His wife's face, his daughter's faces, pegged and eyeless and empty, hung there amongst the washing.
I stop recording. You didn't kill them, I venture. That's what you're telling me. You're innocent. The man in the bed shakes his head. Whatever happened to my family, he insists, I was the cause of. I have no doubt about that. He had been offered two chances to leave, and he'd failed to take either of them. This, as he'd tried to explain to his lawyer, had been why he hadn't called the police or an ambulance. Why he'd walked back into the kitchen, slid a knife from the rack, and provided tangible evidence to whoever might be watching that he was ready to make things right. He stares at me, wild-eyed and delighted, through the protective gauze of his mask. It's coming loose round the edges. You can see the raw flesh. They'll be coming to get me soon enough, he says. I don't mind, even if they make me wait. I'm ready now. I'm ready to go with them. I'm at home as I record this, alone in my apartment, with the front door locked and bolted, and I can't stop thinking about something. When I was younger, and in London, I never gave much consideration to my mother. Sometimes I used to dream that she'd die soon, of some petty embolism or in a car accident, and finally I'd have a way to explain myself. That's just the way David is, they'd say, and in my heart I'd be able to agree with their diagnosis. That's just the way David is, because his mother died. I used to often dream of cataclysmic events like these. The loss of both legs, a sudden blindness, some awful and unique tragedy that would be a way to make sense of me. But now I'm in a skew, and I understand there's nothing to be explained. I dream of my mother, singing under her breath beside the bathtub, her back turned to me, the taps running and the boiler roaring with giddy laughter to welcome me home. This feels like a warning, as if the city wants me to understand there's no way out, and that if I should believe I found an escape route, and I should turn a door handle to find myself back in my own familiar flat, and my mother there with her back turned to me humming and chanting, her fingers buried in the water of two roaring taps. Then she may turn to reveal a face that is not hers, but chalk white and empty and grinning, and I will know that I am still in a skew. All of this, as ever, is most likely vanity on my part. A delusion that the world appears differently to me as it does to others. A reality I'm confronted with when I take my finished article to my editor and he tells me that it's all useless as the man tossed himself down a concrete stairwell last night and the papers no longer have use for any of it. Nevertheless... I think I might have to be more careful about how I speak to you. Be with you again soon.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.